Well, it's great to have you here, and uh, we want to invite you to take out your Bibles now and turn in them to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament in chapter number 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could grab that Bible and turn in the front portion to page 657, and you would be at Jonah chapter 3. Now, in 1993, one of my favorite movies uh, came out. It was called Groundhog Day. And Groundhog Day is a, a movie about second chances. If you haven't seen it, it is a movie uh, starring Bill Murray, who plays a character called Phil Connors. And Phil Connors is a weatherman at WPBH Channel 9 News in Pittsburgh. And he is reluctantly assigned the assignment on Groundhog Day to go out to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania for the appearance of the groundhog. And you know the groundhog tradition is that when the groundhog comes out, if there's no shadow that he sees, then there's going to be an early spring. But if he comes out and there is a shadow, then there's going to be six more weeks of winter. And Bill Murray in this movie is more than disinterested in the assignment that he has received. In fact, he resents it. And it's very interesting to watch how all that works. And you see him on Groundhog Day awakening, and you see his alarm clock clicking over to 6 a.m., and, and Sonny and Cher come on the radio singing, I Got You, Babe. And then the announcers are talking about rise and shine, and there's going to be a blizzard today. Well, what happens in the movie is he actually gets to relive that day, and you see the alarm clock again turn, and Sonny and Cher come up singing, and they talk about rising and shining, and there's going to be a blizzard today. And he just gets to relive that day. In fact, he has a second chance to relive that day repeatedly in the movie. And what the movie does is it tracks what he learns, and he begins to get some clarity about what is really important to him. Well, today we have come to Jonah's Groundhog Day, really Jonah's second chance. And we've been studying the book of Jonah. If you haven't picked up an outline, I would encourage you to, to pick it up, subtitled The God of Second Chances. And we see Jonah receiving a second chance today. Now, if you have ever had that thought, oh, would it be nice to have a second chance? You know, have you ever had that thought come across your mind, if I could just turn back time, if I could just have a second chance to do something differently or to say something differently, if I just could have another opportunity? And a lot of times we have that longing. Now, sometimes we get a second chance. Sometimes we don't. But there's always to be lessons learned with God, no matter how it works out. But what God does, we see here, is in His grace, He grants to Jonah a second chance. And if you have your Bibles open to chapter 3, I want you to notice, beginning with verse 1, I'm going to read the first four verses, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Jonah 3.1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, we've only read part of the chapter, so let me give you the outline as I have it for all of chapter 3. And here's what we see in chapter 3. In verses 1 and 2, we see Jonah's second chance given to him by God. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see Jonah's obedience. 
And then in verses 5 to 9, we see Nineveh's repentance. And then in verse 10, we see God's relenting. So that's the way the story unfolds for us. Jonah's second chance, uh, Jonah's obedience, Nineveh's repentance, and then God's relenting. So let's work our way through the story of chapter 3. We're going to see some fascinating stuff here in chapter 3. It all begins with Jonah's second chance, and we see that very clearly laid out for us in the first verse. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, men and women, those words are amazingly beautiful words, aren't they? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It underscores that God delights in second chances. And aren't you glad that he does? Aren't you glad that God delights in second chances? I mean, if God were to reject us and discard us after failure, after we disappointed him, well, none of us would be here today, right? If he would just discard us whenever we fail him or disappoint him, none of us would be here. But God delights in second chances. You see it in the life of Peter. Remember how Peter was the one who said to Jesus, I will never deny you. I will go to prison. I will even go to death. And then you remember how quickly he even denied him to a little servant girl that was there. And even with swear words, he said, I never met this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And yet God gave to Peter a second chance. And later he said to Peter, feed my sheep. We see it in the life of John Mark in the New Testament. You know, the young guy who went along on the first missionary journey of Paul, and then he wimped out. It was just too hard. It was too tough. He couldn't handle it. And God gave to John Mark a second chance through the person of Barnabas, and he became a productive servant of the Lord. God delights in second chances. We, we see it over and over in the Bible. We see it in the life of David, someone who was described as having a heart after God's own heart, and yet he made the mistake to take liberties with Bathsheba. And then he added to that error with more error. It was even worse as he went through this cover-up. And there were consequences that he experienced in his life. And yet, God gave to David a second chance. And if God had not given that second chance to David, we would never have had most likely what is the most favorite psalm of all, which is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Without a second chance from God, we would never have Psalm 32 and Psalm 103, which are the great Psalms of the forgiveness of God, and you need to read those every once in a while. God is a God of second chances, and I, men and women, am grateful for that. I am so glad because I have made mistakes. I have disappointed him. I have fallen short at times of what I should be as a leader and what I should be as a husband and what I should be as a father. But I'm so glad that God delights in second chances. How about you? Are you glad? You know, I think even before we move further into our study of, of Jonah 3, it would be just good for us to pause and thank him that he delights in second chances. So would you just pray with me for a moment? God, we just want to, want to thank you now that you're that kind of a God, a God who delights in second chances. 
a, a God who even when we make poor choices that bring consequences to our, our life is not a God. Thank you, God, that you're not quick to discard us when we fail. We thank you that you're a God of grace. Yes, a God of amazing grace. And we just want to thank you. We want to thank you today that you delight in second chances. Thank you. Amen. Now let's take a, a little closer look again at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You remember what happened the first time, right, in chapter 1. He took off running in the opposite direction. The word of the Lord came a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. I want you to go to Nineveh, the great city. Now in the eyes of the world, it was an awesomely imposing city. We talked about how huge the walls were and how thick they were and the incredible power that Nineveh and Assyria had. But in the eyes of God, it was an amazingly wicked place. And God says, I want you to go there and, and proclaim the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Which leads us to Jonah's obedience. So Jonah, says in verse 3, arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now those of you who've been with us in the study will know that Jonah's not the same person that he was in chapter 1. Remember? In disobedience, God had taken him to the depths. God had disciplined him for his disobedience. And he literally smelled the consequences of the discipline of God. Remember how he was regurgitated out of the great fish, vomited out, and, and no doubt just coated with all the whatever you find inside the belly of a great fish. And anytime you're laying in a pool of vomit, it's not a pleasant place to be. So he could literally smell the consequences of the discipline he got from God. And yet, even with that, there's still a choice that has to be made. And even when we can smell the discipline of God, we still make a choice of whether we're going to continue to disobey or whether we will change our mind. And so he arose and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And it says, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now, when it says a three days walk, it doesn't mean a three days walk from, from Israel or, or from the Mediterranean where, where the fish spit them out because it was some 500 miles from Jerusalem all the way over to Nineveh. Most people believe when it says Nineveh was a three days walk, it's referring to Nineveh itself as a city. Now, the historian Herodotus said that a day's walk was six miles and archaeologists have told us, as they study what the main wall of the city of Nineveh was at the time, it was about seven and a half miles around the perimeter. So how is this a three days walk in Nineveh? Well, most likely what he was referring to is when he talked about a three days walk, he was including the metro area of Nineveh, the outlying regions, what we would call today the suburbs. And that we know that the city of Nineveh included a number of canals, a number of gardens. It included five different wall systems and three different moats. So even though the main wall might have only been seven and a half miles around in perimeter, 
the overall metro area of Nineveh was far larger. In fact, in Genesis chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, we learn that originally in the founding of this area, there was a complex of four towns. There was Nineveh, there was Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala, and Rezin. And apparently over some time, Nineveh had emerged as the leading one of that complex of four cities. And so when we talk about this, we're talking about a rather large area of the metro area, if you would, around Nineveh. And then it says in verse 4 that Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now what is interesting is if you're a student of the Bible, you would recognize forty days is a common thing, or the use of the word forty is a common thing. It is a common number in the Bible related to judgment and related to testing. When you had the great flood in the book of Genesis in chapter 7, you had an intense rain for 40 days. Uh, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they wandered in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. When Jesus was going to be tempted in the wilderness of Judea, it says that he was there without food for 40 days. 40 is a number in the Bible that relates to judgment and relates to testing. And so he was saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, we're now going to move into the next section of the chapter, which is Nineveh's repentance. And before we even get there, I just have to write the word astounding before this. I mean, verse 5 is astounding. There's no other way to look at it. It is an astounding statement. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now, sackcloth is not something we talk about in everyday life in our culture today, but sackcloth was what the poorest of the poor would wear. And when you would put on sackcloth, you were communicating that I am needy. And in this context, it's a communication that I am spiritually needy. They were mourning over their sin. And it said this happened from the greatest to the least of them, the full spectrum of society. The simplest people, all the way up to the most wealthy people, responded in this way. And then it says in verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, and the critics like to go, whoa, 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 bogus, bogus, bogus. There is no king of Nineveh. Nineveh is a city. You don't have kings of cities. It would be the king of Assyria maybe, but not the king of Nineveh. This just shows you again that the Bible is just so full of errors you just can't even deal with it. But see, what, what people often miss is that, that this idea of connecting a king of a nation to a city is a very common thing. For example, in 1 Kings 21.1, we have King Ahab, who was the king of Israel, called the king of Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. In 2 Chronicles 24.23, we have Ben-Hadad, who is the king of Syria, or sometimes called Aram, who is designated there the king of Damascus, which was the capital city of Syria. And so we see in the Bible this idea of leading cities and capitals being identified with the king of the country. So it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with this. This is a common kind of thing that would happen in that day. 
But the word reached the king of Nineveh. And I'm telling you, something astounding happens here. Notice it there. He arose from his throne and he laid aside his robe. I mean, these were acts of humility. He got off of his throne as the king and he took his robe as the ruler off and he laid it aside. And notice what happens. It says he... he um, I've got to find myself back in here. All right, verse, verse 6. He laid aside his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He was basically saying, I am spiritually needy. I am mourning. I want to do some overt acts of repentance. And then notice verses 7, 8, and 9. What happens there? He issued a proclamation, and he said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each one may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. He says, I don't, I don't even want the animals to get food. He basically adds the bleeding and bellowing of animals to the voices of the people calling on God. Just kind of try to imagine what that would have been like. And I really like the phrase that you see in verse 8 when it says that each one turn from his wicked way. You see, each person is individually responsible. We talk about a group of people who turn to God, but a group never really does that. Ultimately, it's individuals who do that. Each one individually must make a choice. And, and this is absolutely astounding, men and women. There is nothing that has ever happened that I know of like what occurred here. I mean, this is astounding for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's astounding because of the numbers involved. You remember in chapter 4, verse 11, the very last verse, it talks about in Nineveh there were 120,000 who did not know their left hand from their right. We talked about that. That's a reference to babies because even young toddlers can distinguish between their right and their left. So there's 120,000 babies, which means there were 600,000 to 1 million people living in the metro area of Nineveh. That is absolutely astounding. I mean, have you ever heard of such a thing? 600,000 to a million people responding to one message from one person? It's astounding because of the numbers, and it's astounding because of the wickedness of the people. We've talked about how ruthless the people of Assyria were, incredibly ingenious in being cruel. We've talked about that in detail. They went out of ways to invent ways to torture people and to be cruel to people that no one had ever seen. And they were a very coarse and lustful people, um, practiced temple prostitution. Nudity was a huge part of their culture all over the place on multiple levels. And they practiced human sacrifice. This is astounding. This is astounding, not only the numbers, but the wickedness of the people. And I want to notice a couple of things about this. I want to I note two things that I think are very important. Here's the first one. God can change anyone. God can change anyone. 
You know, you see that in the, in the early years of the church when Saul, remember Saul, and he comes face to face with Christ and he becomes Paul. And we know the story and, and we just, we can tell that story and we miss the, the emotional deep meaning of that to the church. I mean, can think about it. You have the guy who was the number one enemy of the church who made sure that certain people were executed and certain people were imprisoned, including women, and he also tortured people. And that person who was the number one enemy of the church became the number one promoter of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, men and women, that was astounding for that to happen. But God can change anyone. God can change anyone. And some of you are thinking about someone who comes to your mind, and you're thinking, well, yeah, but God couldn't change, you know, fill in the blank. No, God can change anyone. Anyone. Can God change terrorists, people who like to send bombs to other people and kill them? Can God change terrorists? God can change anyone. I want to tell you a story of a terrorist who found out that God could change anyone. Uh, this comes out of an article that was in Brent Riggs' um, webpage, and I'll tell you a little bit about how you can find out a little more about that, but it's a story of, of Kenny McClinton. And Kenny McClinton was one of the most feared men in Northern Ireland. Many, many years of terrorist activity, uh, bombing people and, and killing people. In fact, he ended up with two life sentences for murder and other acts of terrorist violence. And what was really interesting, you know, they don't have the death penalty there, so when they threw him into prison, even in prison, he could not be tamed by the authorities, and he would often be thrown into solitary confinement, which was really about the maximum punishment they could come up with. In fact, he was thrown into solitary confinement uh, 15 times within one nine-month period. You just got to tell you a little bit more about this guy, an amazing guy. He goes on to talk about how after one major bombing campaign that he did there in Northern Ireland, he spent two weeks after that drinking hard. And he said, I remember waking up one morning in a girlfriend's bed. And I had a dreadful hangover and was sweating profusely and feeling disgusted with what I had become, a terrorist murderer. Of course, he ends up in, in, in prison, and as we said, he, he was a tr tremendously rebellious person, and even when he was in prison, man, he, he went after it. He was one of the original instigators of a, of a group in the prison called the Loyalist Blanket Brigade, and these guys used to want to defy the prison in any way that they could and break the prison rules. In fact, whenever they, they did an offense and they had to be called back into court from prison, they would appear in court dressed in their underwear just to show contempt to the judge. You know, you think you're going to do something with me? I'm going to appear here in my underwear. And on one occasion, Kenny and another inmate were reported by the national newspapers as making a full frontal attack on society. What that meant was that they made an appearance in court totally naked, basically defying the judge. What are you going to do about it? Sentence me to more time in prison? He led this group, 
And uh, what was really interesting to him is when all they could do is really throw him into solitary confinement. When he went into solitary confinement, that means you had nothing. You had nothing to mentally stimulate you at all. The only thing that was ever in there was a rather decrepit-looking prison issue of the King James Version of the Bible. So, you know, with nothing else to do in solitary confinement, quite frequently he began to read through there. And he was even in the Old Testament, he began to think, you know, this is kind of cool. I like a God who wants to, like when they went have to go into the land and cleanse the land and wipe people out, he says, I can identify with that kind of thing. He was an amazingly rebellious person. And I'm sure anyone looking at it would wonder, could God ever change anybody like that? I mean, he was an awesome, awesomely rebellious guy. In fact, one time he took on 15 prison officers at one time dressed only in a prison towel around his waist. Fifteen of them, come on, I'll take you on right now. And they administered their own kind of justice to him, hanging him upside down by his feet and beating him until he couldn't breathe. He received 26 injuries in the beating and was awarded 22 days in punishment for attacking 15 prison officers and, of course, solitary confinement, which left him with this decrepit King James Bible. And as he began to read through that Bible, he remembers, he says, the first realization that he was a filthy, hell-deserving sinner. But the Bible pointed him to the righteous Jesus Christ who had suffered and dies and rose again from the dead in order to offer sinners his forgiveness. And so it was on August the 12th, 1979, falling down on his knees in cell 9, H block 6 of the Mays Prison, Kenny called out in repentance, asking for forgiveness and faith to believe and praise God. He trusted in Christ Jesus. What's really interesting is what happened to him after that happened. Um, he decided he was going to take the loyalist blanket protesters and have a little meeting. The way they would do it in the prison is they would come to their cell doors to hear what one of them had to say, and they would shout it out loudly and Kenny said, I want to, I want to say something to you guys. And they were expecting some sort of a morale booster from their leader, and here's what he said. He said, today I have taken the most important step of my life. I have renounced violence. I have repented of my sins. I have asked Jesus Christ into my life and to save me, and I believe he has saved me. From this day forth, I cease to be military commander of the UFF and wish only to be a mere volunteer in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will seek to serve him to the best of my ability, and I just wanted you men to know this. And God gave to Kenny McClinton a second chance. And as some time went by, he was released from prison, and today is serving the living God in ministry for the glory of Jesus Christ. Can God change anyone? Yes, he can. If you'd like to read more of his story, and I just gave you some of the highlights of it, you can go to SeriousLifeMagazine.com. SeriousLifeMagazine.com, and you can read all about Kenny McClinton. But maybe you're listening today and you're just thinking the thought, God can't change me. And I just want to tell you, yes, he can. God can change anyone.
Now, that's the first thing I want you to notice from chapter 3. The second thing in particular I want you to notice is this, the power of one person with God's message. The power of one person with God's message. Now, remember, Jonah is not some superstar. He's not someone due to his personal grit. He decided to confront an evil empire in the power of his personality. It's not what we have. He is a fallible man who has experienced his own failures, yet God uses him. The power of one person with God's message. And the message he had, men and women, on the surface, it was pretty foolish if you think about it. I mean, think about this big metropolis, and you have this strange guy. And I don't know, maybe his appearance had even been affected by the time that he spent in the fish. And he's walking through this massive city, and he's delivering this message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's pretty (laughs) far-fetched. But here's what's interesting. You never know how God has been at work behind the scenes. Don't ever forget that. The power of one person with God's message because we don't ever know how God has been at work. We know historically that before Jonah came, Nineveh had experienced two very harsh plagues. Not long before Jonah came, there had been a total eclipse of the sun. And in that culture, these kinds of things brought a huge sense of foreboding to people. And then we see Jonah, one person with God's message. You see, you never know how God is at work behind the scenes. The power of one person with God's message. I mean, Jonah and Nineveh, it's a great story. There's probably been never an event like it before. But here's what's interesting. We have a greater story to tell. But to many people, it is far-fetched. It is foolish. Keep your finger here and go with me in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. And we are reminded that the message we have to the world seems foolish, just as the message may have appeared to Jonah as he's communicating it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And there's even a movie out there making fun, really, right now, of the fundamentals of Christianity. But notice he says in verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through, uh, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
See, people out there, when we begin to communicate the message of the cross, it just it, it immediately can sound like a foolish thing to them. What you, you're telling me, I don't have to do anything to work my way into a good graces with God, that the idea is that God became a man and came down to this planet and he died on a cross and all I need to do, all I need to do is to trust and rest and, and, and embrace what he did for me and I can have forgiveness of sins and I can become a member of the family of God and I can have an inheritance from God and I'm gonna have eternal life not only now but all of forever? That's the whole story? To a lot of people, that's far-fetched and foolish, but you never know how God is at work behind the scenes. You just have to look at a guy like Kenny McClinton and his reputation and his persona and his showing up naked in front of the court, and yet God was at work. The power of one person with God's message. Now the next thing that happens, of course, in Jonah chapter 3 is God's relenting. Notice in, in verse 10, when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. They turned from their wickedness, and God turns from his wrath. Now, again, the critics like to come along here and they say, yeah, there's just another one of those inconsistencies in the Bible. You know, the Bible supposedly claims that God is unchangeable, and then God said he was going to do something, and then God relented from doing that. That's just totally inconsistent. Another one of those Bible errors that we see. But I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, Jonah's statement that he made Back in verse 4, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That statement implies that it is conditional. I mean, otherwise, there'd be no reason to warn anybody. If you're just going to do it, you don't warn them, you just do it. But the fact that there is a warning implies a conditionality to it. Another thing we need to note in the Bible, there is a huge amount of difference between divine decrees and conditional announcements by God. A divine decree is, in essence, an oath that God gives. I take this oath. I absolutely, positively guarantee that such and such a thing would happen. That's different than a conditional announcement that God makes. I want to keep your finger here. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. It's to the left, several books, chapter 18. And we see illustrated for us that God indeed makes conditional announcements. Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 7. God says, at one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, pull down, or to destroy it. But notice, he says in verse 8, and if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity that I have planned to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning, verse 9, a nation or concerning a kingdom to build that kingdom up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. You see, sometimes God makes conditional announcements. And 
That was the case here. And when they turned from their wickedness, God turned from his wrath. Now, let's try to draw all this together. Let's talk about some life response that we can have coming out of Jonah chapter 3. And the life response I'm going to suggest involves a question, involves an opportunity, and it involves an appeal. So let's look at those three things. The first part of life response is a question, and here's the question I have. God delights in second chances. Do you? What I mean by that is that God delights in extending to others second chances. Do you? Who might there be in your life that has disappointed you? Who might there be in your life that has fallen short? Who in your life maybe has made a significant mistake? God delights in second chances, do you? You see, that's what God is like, and we are to be like him. And so it may very well be that one of the things that God is saying to you today is there is someone to whom you should be extending a second chance. That's God-like. Now, the second part of life response is an opportunity, and the opportunity involves what we're calling the Better Together Marriage Seminar. And uh, if, you'll, if you'll take your bulletins, you'll notice there's an announcement in there called Informational Meeting for the Better Together Marriage Seminar. And what I want you to do is I want you to mark down October 19th, Sunday night from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. to come here to the church because here's what's happening. We've been planning and praying about for years having an outreach marriage conference to reach unchurched couples in our community. And we are going to be having a marriage conference. It's going to go on uh, Valentine's weekend. And the idea is this is a bring another couple with you event. And we're going to give you all the information you need to know about this, and we're going to be able to be sharing with you on October 19th effective strategies on how to effectively invite unchurched couples to that weekend. And there's a lot of people with need, and we don't know what God has been doing. But there's an opportunity for us to get involved, and we've been excited about this for a long time. So set aside October 19th for that special information that we're going to be able to share about this, and we want to sit back and watch what God is going to do. And then the third part of our life response is an appeal. And I just simply want to make a quick observation, particularly for those who have not yet established a relationship with the living God, the person of Jesus Christ. There are three tracks of truth, three veins of truth that weave through these verses, and here's the first one. The first one is that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians, in the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7, it tells us this. It says, There is a time coming when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And if you do not know him personally, it's important that I convey to you 
what you see conveyed to the city of Nineveh, and that is that judgment is coming. And then the second track of truth or vein of truth that's here is the, the vein of remorsefulness and faith. We see that in verse 5, and we see that in verse 8. And that's what God wants from you if you do not know him yet personally. He wants you to admit the fact that you've messed up, that you have really violated some of the laws of God, that you are a sinner, as the Bible likes to describe it. And that's what Kenny McClinton did. And he wants you then to, to believe in and to trust in and to rest in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. To, to put all your weight onto that and say, that's my hope with God, what Jesus Christ did. And then the third track of truth or vein of truth that is here is that God is ready to be merciful. You see that very clearly in verse 10. In fact, in Exodus, the 34th chapter, it describes God as compassionate and gracious, a God who is abundant in loving kindness, a God who forgives iniquity, forgives transgression, and forgives sin. And so I want to appeal to you, if you do not know God personally, that today, even right where you sit right now, right where you're listening, that you would join the ranks of the generation at Nineveh, that you would join the ranks with Saul, who became Paul, that you would join the ranks with Kenny McClinton to turn to the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this powerful portion of the Word of God. And Lord, especially my heart is burdened today for those that do not know Christ personally, and may they become aware of the fact that judgment is coming. But it doesn't have to be that way that if they will be men or women of faith and remorse to admit their failures before you and to trust in what Christ has done, then you are ready to be merciful to them. You are compassionate and gracious and forgiving. And Father, I would pray that if any have never trusted you, right even where they sit now, because they don't have to say magic words, they have to convey where their heart is, just like Kenny McClinton did to you. They will do that, that you will come and not only visit them, you will change them. And we would pray that that would happen today, Father, for many. Thank you for your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.